Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to another FS Club webinar. And today's subject is Everything Will Be Tokenized, the Future of Identity. And we're delighted to have with us today uh, Katrina Dow, who's the CEO and founder of Miko. And she is dialing in from Belgium. So yet again, one of the small advantages of the pandemic, a recognition that there's a big world out there and we can bring it into our, uh, into our own homes. Anyway, you'll know me. I'm Michael Mainelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it really is a privilege to be able to chair so many of these fantastic uh, webinars. And I'm only able to do so because our sponsors are extremely tolerant and allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And today, we're certainly going to be looking at that because Miko is very much about the core, in many ways, of economics and finance, which is surrounding the whole concept of identity. Uh, and I'm looking forward to something that really blends together all three strands of our work and of our sponsors' interests. Now, my job today is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can hear from our expert, Katrina. Uh, and in order to do so, I'm just going to make three quick points before I leave. Uh, the first is that, yes, the slides are available and are, are posted on the web, as well as uh, Peter, uh, who's managing today, has posted them in the chat room. Uh, secondly, uh, the recording will go up in approximately two working days, uh, so we would expect this to be up sometime on Friday, and it's available to share with friends and colleagues and uh, anybody else uh, who, who you think might be interested in knowing who they are on the tokenized world. Um, and finally, uh, in terms of the question and answer facility here, please use the question and answer facility in the GoToWebinar chat area there. Uh, you're very welcome to text me, email me, signal me, WhatsApp me, or communicate in any way. But I'm here with you uh, for the next 45 minutes, and I, I won't be picking up any of those messages. But if you do put them into the chat room, I will uh, feed them into a conversation uh, with Katrina from 11.25, where we will discuss some of the implications of this. All of your comments, chats, and questions will be sent to Katrina. So if you want to contact her, or you'd like her to contact you with some specific details, just put that in the chat room and we'll make sure that she gets it with your email attached to it. So with no further ado, if I may, uh, Katrina, the floor is yours. Thank you, Michael. And um, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Um, uh, it's lovely to be here. I'm just going to um, start sharing my screen. And uh, if everyone can see that, we'll, we'll kick off. And uh, as Michael said, um, we will pick up questions around um, 25 past the hour. So I have 20 minutes to describe um, the future of tokenization and identity. Um, so uh, just confirming you can see my screen? Yes, we can see it by screen. So very quickly, um, Miko, we have a mission to enable everyone to get equity and value in exchange for the data they share. Um, and the way we do that is to focus on how we access, control, and exchange data. And so today, what I want to actually do is focus on the idea of tokenization, um, everything being tokenized. And 20 minutes is not going to do justice to the, to the extensive aspect of that subject. But what we're going to start to look at is what that means from an identity point of view. And the idea of anything that can be, will be tokenized, um, basically that we will be able to uniquely identify whether or not it's an asset, an object, a person, a thing. 
Um, the way we're moving and particularly some of the exciting things that are happening with from a blockchain perspective is it's giving us this opportunity to start to uniquely identify everything. There's also another amazing opportunity for us right now. Um, and this has happened at, at, at different times in the evolution of, of, of society, is that there's an opportunity to make things more equitable, for us to think about the way we tokenize and the way we exchange for that to be more equitable. And I say opportunity because these are architectural and design decisions that we're really faced with right now, particularly because we are living in a very interesting post-truth world. Just because you see something or you hear something, or something it doesn't necessarily mean it's true and so one of the things that we are hoping to achieve as quickly as possible in interactions is trust how can we trust something how can I trust what I've seen what I've heard that information and one of the amazing um, opportunities that comes with the tokenization of making something unique is that we can wrap around trust um, how something's been issued, how something's been proven, where it's stored, how to track it, how to trace it, and also how to revoke it. And so our, this led us to specifically say, well, if we're going to be able to do this with uh, by tokenizing things, um, assets, objects, how do we then build the infrastructure that we actually need for individuals? And, and by individuals, we also see that each of us now, um, almost from the moment we're born, or in fact, before we're born, we start to develop this digital twin. So our focus has been specifically on that. So before I dive into that, quick poll question. Um, in 2020, one of the popular game platforms actually sold over $1.2 billion worth of virtual currency. So just interested to see what you think in terms of um, which of these three groups made up more than more than 50% of the purchasing decision user base. I thought this was a fantastic question, Christina. <laughs> okay, well, we can see uh, people are voting. Over half the audience voted in 10 seconds. As ever, a swift audience, Katrina. Uh, and we've got now well over 80%. So I'm oh, just going to close the poll if that's okay. And we will now present the results. So um, children over 13, nearly 50% of the audience thought so. But put us out of our misery. What's the right What's the right answer? Okay. So it's actually the first group, children under 13. Wow. Um, why is that important? Because what we're doing right now is we're heading towards this world where we actually have a whole generation right now that is actually quite comfortable with the idea of things being tokenized or virtual currency. Um, and of course, if you're under 13, it's a parent that's probably had to do that financial transaction. But I think this is a great indication, Michael, especially of how important it is that we start to teach this generation how to manage digital keys and actually how some of the things they're becoming used to in the game world actually are mirrored now in, in, the, in the actual world. And so we have a whole generation that actually understands what micropayments means, what digital currency means, what small transactions means. And so what, what you think of a 13-year-old right now, in the next year or so, they may be working part-time, having a bank account, starting to move into the next phase of their digital life and with more autonomy. And these are the sorts of things that people are going to start to expect are actually part of mainstream design. So why is that important? Well, let's look at typical access management and identity. Let's start from 
back in the old days when we could actually control things like an employee and put a perimeter around them. And then all of a sudden what we wanted to do was we wanted employees and partners to actually start collaborating. So we needed to move that perimeter so that we were able to enable that collaboration. And then from there, what we wanted to do was actually bring in um, ways of people being able to collaborate externally with cloud. Then we add devices, um, that perimeter started to move out into the mobile world, and here's where we are right now. So we have much more complexity. So we not only do we have this new paradigm of the way that we can uniquely identify things and the way that we can interact with things from a tokenization point of view, we also need to manage the complexity of relationships, attributes, the context, and, and what that means in terms of um, the way that we um, use identity and, and trust. So I'm just going to go through three very quick use cases now or case studies, starting with some of the things that we've been doing. Um, our focus in understanding this world was to say, okay, we were already part of the W3C standard working group around verified credentials, decentralized identity, and we realized how critical uh, identity is. But we also recognized that what was missing was this bridge between today's world and the world that we're evolving to. Um, and if I'm to quote Brandon Murdoch from Microsoft, who often says it's actually an evolution rather than a revolution. It may feel like a revolution a few years from now, but we're in this state of evolution. So one of the things we focused on was how we could start to develop decentralized systems to actually alongside existing enterprise architecture, how we could start to build um, environments um, around digital identity using standards like OpenID Connect, how we could move away from um, lock-in and how we could start to look at the way that all stakeholders could be incentivized. Katrina, do you mind just explaining IDP lock-in? Just Yes, yeah, sure. So um, an identity provider lock-in. So basically what we wanted to be able to do is to say, um, and if we go back to that, that issue of trust, really, is that when you think of um, uh, trust anchors, as we call them, governments, banks, financial institutions, border control, there's a whole new layer of commercial value associated with institutions, organizations, clubs, groups, FS club, that, that are actually trusted within a particular context that may be able to provide verification for a specific attribute. It might be one attribute. Michael is a member. Um, uh, Michael regularly this or, and so what we're able to do is look at how these trust anchors actually can contribute things and it may be a single attribute. And what we imagined was bringing that together in a technology that was multi-purpose. So not just a decentralized wallet that could do identity, but also could manage consent. Um, and I'll pick up on that in, in, in a few moments as to why that's so important, but also support payments, um, tokens and verified credentials. So the next use case, um, I'm really um, proud and delighted to share that over the last year, we've been doing some amazing work together with FPOS in Australia. And for those of you that, that don't know FPOS, they provide the payment infrastructure in Australia, over 2 billion debit card transactions last year, averaging more than 300 million a day. And this, the, the work around specifically looking at um, uh, a stable coin micropayment 
capability was led by Rob Allen, the entrepreneur in residence at FPOS in Australia. And this is really Rob's vision. He has a very strong background in payments and identity. Um, and the aim was to be able to look at um, how micropayments could be enabled in such a way that we could start to build faster and fairer transactions, something was feasible from the merchant's perspective as a percentage of transaction, that it could be linked to a stable coin. Why? Because that way we could give customers the all of the benefits and value that comes with a cryptocurrency without them needing actually to understand all the complexity of, of that. So having all of that built into the wallet in a very simple way of onboarding and actually people interacting with that capability in the same way they, they would with their debit card or, or, or a, um, a balance that they were, um, that they were familiar with um, in terms of the way they use it. Also the important thing, identity preserving. And some of the exciting things that we did as part of this uh, proof of technology together with FPOS and Hedera, and, and I'll talk a little about Hedera in a moment, is that what we started to do was wrap attributes of, of um, identity attributes inside a payment or a payment around an attribute. So one of the things you could start to do was prove age um, at the same time as completing a transaction. And the thing that is really exciting and groundbreaking about this work that, that Rob and FPOS ha have done in Australia is, is being able to prove what is possible um, with a technology that, that, again, we have a generation that are um, uh, embracing right now, a wallet, the idea of a wallet, um, being able to manage things uh, in a digital channel, but to get these merchant fees down to small transactions so that you could start to do things like micropayments for accessing content, online content, music, um, and then we could start to look at fractional um, exchange of value uh, that is fast, fair, and affordable, um, which brings us to Hedera. So we had done some early work with FPOS um, around some earlier proof of technologies using Ethereum. And again, it was Rob's vision and uh, the connection that he'd, he'd been cultivating with Hedera since launch um, that introduced us to start to look at how we could also incorporate Hedera into our tech stack. Um, and why? Four simple reasons, fast, fair, secure, and stable. So the speed of uh, Hedera, um, the transparency, the ability to control those costs are all part of um, what enabled the micropayments micro capability. And as you can see with Hedera, um, uh, one of the decisions that FPOS made post um, the success of this proof of technology around the micropayments was actually become a council member. Council members are growing every day. We're very proud to be there as, as a partner in providing the wallet infrastructure. But what we're starting to see is use cases that, that touch everything from aviation to um, law to payments um, to health. Um, and I think what we're, we're, that what we're starting to see is that this, this ecosystem is just going to continue to grow and develop. This is probably my favorite um, guiding principle um, in anything that we do or any decision that I have from an organizational point of view um, is the ethics and the responsibility that comes with, with anything we invent. And, and I, I love this idea. When you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. 
Um, so we're doing some amazing things in the world right now. What a fascinating time to be alive, incredible. But there's also responsibility that comes with each of the, the things that we create. And so um, that's a guiding principle in everything we design. And again, to quote uh, Rob from, from FPOS, um, he has a fantastic use case that he often quotes in terms of incentivizing a micropayment, and that is you're in a hurry and you could incentivize the autonomous vehicle ahead of you to get out of your way and transfer a small unit of value so that you can get to where you want to go on time. And so when we can start to imagine device to device um, uh, making these instant um, uh, negotiations over a transfer of value and settling. And is that so far-fetched? Well, not really. In the last uh, year or so, Audi have, have been um, uh, working on their vehicle to infrastructure so that the, the car can actually anticipate traffic lights and, and when to accelerate, when to, when to slow down, when to speed up. And so when we start to think about how those things come together, so that, that's a, a potential exciting possibility. Let's flip it and let's look at what happened in 2019 pre-pandemic when as a result of the social um, uh, the social game that's played across China with their um, surveillance infrastructure was banning almost the entire population of Australia from travelling um, as, as associated with their social credit system. So whilst these technologies are very exciting, they also come with an extraordinary amount of responsibility. So one of the ways to manage that responsibility, to manage it from a legal point of view, to manage it from an ethical point of view, is we see that there will be three tiers. Um, we, we see that life is going to move between ledgers and networks or ledgers and ec ecosystems. And we see that one of the design principles is this idea of private, permissioned and public. Private being my digital twin. That is, that's the ledger that I want to protect at all costs. That is me. That, that is a representation of who I am, what I'm doing, what I'm interacting with. Permissioned may be the environment um, where I'm specifically in a use case. It may be I'm interacting with my bank, my gover government, a border. I'm purchasing something. I'm selling something. And there's a good reason why that, that, is, a, uh, that is a closed or, or managed um, environment. And then last of all, public. Why? Because we want to start to externalise that governance. We want that transparency. Um, and in putting together the webinar and chatting with Michael, he was kind enough to send this article, which I would highly recommend, The Temple and the Souk, The Future of Mutual Distributed Ledgers, which he wrote in 2015, another prescient article, which really talks to this battle between one blockchain to rule them all or this, or this digital bazaar of opportunity and the way those two worlds come together. I hope those two worlds will come together because I think that will ultimately provide um, the most ethical, privacy-enhancing and um, empowering possibilities for humans, but it will also enable us to, to start building um, the, the right commercial foundations. So very quickly, some of the challenges and some of the things that we're thinking about in designing this. Um, the bottom line is identity is, is more personal than ever. The, the ability for us to fuse together the digital and the biometric, whatever that is, whether that's blood, face, the way we walk. Just so this idea of disclosure, we nearly need, we really need to start thinking about the way we design. One of our design principles always is before asking for consent, minimum collection, maximum value. What do I need to know your date of birth or do I 
over 18? Let me ask a question where I can get a yes or no binary answer rather than collecting that information. One of the other really important rules um, in terms of the way this world is moving, and we've seen this um, uh, with things like uh, the, the GameStop issue over the last couple of months and the volatility in the market, is that commercial models need to incentivize everyone. This is not a winner-takes-all scenario. So starting to design ecosystems, all stakeholders have to, have to be considered and there has to be incentives for everyone. And more importantly, if there is going to be some treasury function and there's going to be an exchange of value, um, at the moment um, that that value is agreed, we need to be able to settle fast and that settlement needs to be transparent. And, and again, a, a shout out to Hedera for doing some really interesting, uh, offering some interesting capability in that treasury and settlement environment. Um, last but not least, governance. Um, we have, uh, for those reasons around privacy, regulation, um, uh, designing for fairer and more equitable systems, we have additional governance responsibility. So being able to show that that governance is in place. And then for these digital kids, these under 13 year olds who we want to give digital keys, we still got some things to work out. How do we balance this control with convenience? How do we start to bring in trusted brokers or escrow services for, for, key, for, for um, key management, for backup recovery? So we see that there's a whole opportunity for a whole range of new services that, that, that will, that will, um, that will uh, actually uh, spring up to enable this generation to, to be digitally connected, trust and, and know that there's someone that can help them. And then last but not least, where is all of this coming for us? Well, we realise that what, um, what people need are the tools. So our focus is on the infrastructure, um, whether or not that's through white label solutions or whether it's SDKs to put in existing applications or whether that's helping with documentation. Um, our focus is on what are the tools we need um, and how do we uh, enable some of these principles that are important to us around access control and exchange um, and ethical design to be part of, of the way we're moving forward. So, um, uh, 20 minutes um, of uh, everything will be tokenized, and I'm hoping now we can dive into um, a conversation about whether or not uh, that is going to be the case. Katrina, that was wonderful, really, really wonderful, uh, and wonderful because you, you kindly accommodated our format, uh, and our audience out there is uh, clearly coming up with a lot of comments and questions, so it should be a great interaction. Folks, just a reminder, please do get your comments, questions, observations in very early so we do have time to address them. Um, now, clearly, one of the one of the most interesting things, I think, was your poll, which has got quite a few uh, comments and questions here about children, but they touch on, on, on some wider issues. Um, so, Ad Van Loon is curious, how can online platforms verify the age of their users with any certainty? Uh, and should children under 13 years old need the consent of their parents? Um, I think that's that, that, that's probably an interesting one on its own, but I, I, I throw into that as well, if I might, um, a comment here, uh, really from uh, from Dan Johnson. Do children, particularly those under 13, really understand micropayments, or does the current infrastructure abstract them from the value of money? Have we made it too easy for people to interact and pay? I think that's a good question. So, uh, Ad Van Loon on uh, verifying the age and uh, Dean. Uh, here on, on uh, uh, sorry, Dan, on whether it's too easy for children to pay. 
so I think yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, and also hi Dan, nice to hear that you're that you're in the audience. So so yes, there should be um, a, a verification process or, or, or we need to have some of those projections in place. And, and full disclosure very quickly, one of the things that we, we launched uh, this month actually is a, is a, a privacy preserving um, kid tech platform um, with a partner here in Belgium uh, for multimedia, specifically for children zero to seven. And, and really what sits behind that is, is really my passion for how we can get digital keys into the hands of kids, how we can help educate young parents as to the onboarding and why that's so important. Is it just a game for kids under 13? Absolutely. Is it their credit card? No, it's their parents. But the point there is that it is so simple, it is so easy. Uh, it, the idea of the way it works becomes kind of an expectation as you then move out into, you know, shall we say, out of the virtual world into the real world, you know, opening a bank account, um, the way you access education, the way you, you think about the way value is exchanged. Um, and then the other thing in terms of protection, I think one of the big challenges we have is that there is so much um, access for children because there is an age verification, although safeties aren't in place, that we're finding some of the social harms are dropping um, in um, uh, dropping in age. So some of the kinds of things that we know associated with bullying or, or, or identity issues for teenagers, we're starting to see with younger children. And so for me, this is a societal reason why we need to get those protections in place. Kids are learning much faster. Their expectations are different. We need to protect their digital identity while, while it's forming. And we need to understand that they'll have an expectation as soon as they have that independence for a world that looks very different to the world that we have today. Yeah, well, uh, kind of an odd comment, uh, really, for Dan. We ran a, for two years a stock market for children. Um, and we did this in conjunction with uh, 20 different schools and several hundred students. And it was odd. Uh, most of the older folks said, oh, they won't get it. Um, and actually, they got it at a very, very tender age. So uh, I'm not too sure whether that's that's just basic anthropology that as apes, we understand trade and exchange, or is it that this is a new type of generation? But uh, let's switch to the other end of the scale of life. And Bob McDowell has a great question here. Uh, does or should identity cease on death through notification, or does identity continue in the tokenization world? So we have, um, we, we think it will continue. And in fact, it, one of the things that we've been working on this, this year is um, some changes around our access management that are post-physical life. So we see that we have a digital birth before we have a physical birth. Um, the average um, digital physical connection is around six weeks for, for a child in the US, but I think that's getting, um, that's getting sooner and sooner and sooner. So, so we actually start to have a digital footprint beforehand, but we also recognize that there will be legacy decisions, particularly from a tokenized perspective, when you start to think about some of the rules. So a simple rule is you can't inherit something until you're 21. That's very simple. Uh, you, your lawyer can you know, execute that. You turn 21, there's a funds transfer. But if you start to imagine that, that, that those same sorts of rules can be coded into um, many aspects of, of wishes that you have during the course of life, that those things will be able to continue to be 
um, uh, honoured or implemented post-life. Um, and we also realised that one of the, the challenges, one of the modern day challenges we have right now is it is often very hard to turn off the digital um, post-physical life. And that can be very traumatic to families. So this idea of having some kind of digital legacy um, and having some, again, trust anchors um, that may be able to deal with different aspects of one's physical life, um, which are obviously financial, estate planning, but it, it could also be your issues around education, or it could simply be a message that you want to leave for your great, 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 great grandchild. Um, and you want to be able to tokenize that in a painting um, uh, or a piece of digital art that you want a future generation to have and for you to feel like you have that connection. So we haven't even begun to explore what this means in terms of um, intergenerational transfer of, of assets, wealth, and messages. Um, well, that leads nicely onto a question from Eleanor McHugh, because um, you're talking about the tokenization of everything, but uh, how do you envision tokens uniquely identifying everything? That's a, there's a lot of numbers there. Yeah, so look, I think, I think this kind of speaks to the complexity and why I feel um, a quickening around um, some of the architecture and the design uh, the way I like to often discuss this, certainly with our team, is for us to try and imagine 50, 100 years from now and then work backwards from some of those use cases to see what some of those foundational decisions are now. And look, let's face it, we're going to get some things wrong. Yeah, I mean, look, the first time somebody spoke to me about Bitcoin and I could have got it at a couple of cents, um, whilst I was completely enamoured, <laughs> uh, I, I, I certainly didn't. I wasn't pressing enough to realise, you know, in that moment, um, how much was going to change. So I think one of the difficulties is, is we're going to have a massive explosion of compute power. Governance is going to be critical. Um, I think that 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 it, it brings us back to why the partnership with Hedera is so important. Is understanding that we're going to have complexities of scale and trust, um, permission, consent. And we really are starting to design a completely different society. Um, and again, back to the shipwreck, there are some there are some big um, there are some big decisions and and some significant responsibility that comes with putting that infrastructure into place. But, well, um, you said we're going to make some mistakes, and uh, I loved your shipwreck reference. Richard Purser says, uh, you know, will the new ship always be worth the risk of shipwreck? Uh, and, and related to that, uh, Christina Paziora uh, is asking, uh, compliments you on a great presentation, but she says, uh, these things are part of a future reality that is still not here yet. What would you advise a company that sells consumer products, digital or physical, to do today in order to best prepare? So it's here today. I mean, I think I think FPOS is a fantastic example of that. Um, uh, being able to look at core business around you know being the trusted payment provider and then saying well what does that look like with um, the whole range of new use cases that are coming being able to access something um, and so from a consumer point of view uh, without understanding uh, what what sector but it might be I want to try something um, and I want to be sure that something 
suits me, works for me, um, is right for my family, is right for my home, um, and I want to minimise the, the downside of that. Um, and so I might want a taste of a product and I want a taste of a service. And so one of the amazing things that, that is possible when we can when we can manage micropayments in a cost-effective way is that we can start to also sample life. Um, another example of it's here today is it's it's there's no question that this current uh, adult generation are finding it very, very difficult to certainly have the same kind of financial security that I had um, in my early 20s or 30s of thinking that it would be possible at some point to own a home, to to have a career, to, um, to be financially stable. Um, and now what we start to see are these microtransactions of young people coming together to collectively own a home or buy, you know, 100 bricks in a wall. And so not only is it here right now, there are many examples of it, but it also then starts to move into this collaborative economy where you have a group to say, we know it's important to secure a particular asset. Um, individually, we can't do it, but collectively we can. And I think that um, th the ability to try, taste and limit risk is on one end of the sector. And at the opposite end of that is to say, I, I personally can't afford to have this fill in the blank, blank house, horse, artwork, um, uh, asset. But what I can do is collectively come together with a group and for us to be able to do that together. So I think, is it completely here today? No, but, but are we there yet? We, we've certainly entered the territory, no question. Ben Koppelman is curious if you could expand, I think sort of where you were headed there for micropayments. How could people get the best deal for their data? How might they organize to get better deals if they could bargain collectively? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so so we have a very um, a very specific view on this because we we saw when when we first started um, uh, to develop our technology, there was uh, a lot of startups that said, okay, you know, Facebook's monetizing your data. You know, you should be able to back it up and monetize it. And it's true, there are lots of services that will give you a um, uh, ten twenty. 50 US dollars a month. Um, however, the reason why we're very interested in, in the collision of these technologies, identity, verified something, credential, being able to prove, uh, the ability to, to payment and the ability to exchange value, is that a, a data point that I might sell or Facebook might trade um, uh, as a, a collective group for passive income may be exponentially more valuable in the context of something I'm trying to do. So for instance, um, if I'm trying to uh, borrow money for a mortgage, um, it may be that some of that data that I may have passively bundled up and sold for 10 US dollars um, actually is gonna save me two basis points um, on a mortgage. So our perspective is, yes, there will be value derived, but this idea of bundling and selling is probably not going to create the same sort of um, uh, both economic return and or empowerment as, as being able to put it contextually. However, there are also opportunities for data collectives where that collective buying power may change something like the cost of electricity or the cost of a service. So being able to bring groups together, anonymise that data and say, well, what's the collective bargaining power that we have? 
Um, and, and the other point that I would make on that is, remember, we've been living with Facebook only for the last couple of decades. Um, I'm certainly old enough to realise in, in, the, in the space of my life major paradigm shifts, particularly in the digital world. So the last couple of decades, changes in monetary policy, changes in the way we connect. The last two decades, we've got used to saying yes um, and, and having our lives monetized in some way. And now what we start to see with the entry of some of these more privacy-preserving tools in the hands of you and I is that we can make better decisions and without jumping into what's happening around antitrust in different parts of the world, we may find that our grandchildren say, I can't believe you used to fill in the blanks um, without there being some kind of value return or control. So I think, you know, we're in the eye of the storm, basically. Now, Philip Middleton is, is in banking and uh, you raised the basis point. So he's, he's curious, you know, what sort of fees do you charge uh, and how realistic is, are those fees, you know, to enable micropayments? Uh, so, uh, first of all, the micropayments um, uh, can be a fraction of the overall transaction. So, in, in the use case we were looking at, it, it could be as simple as, okay, I only want to read one article um, and, you know, I want to pay a cent. So, obviously, the, the, the payment, uh, the, the micropayment and the transaction has to be at, at a percentage where that where that's viable. You know, if you're paying a penny for something, then the cost of doing that transaction has to be um, well and truly less than that. So, so part of those economic models are going to come out of what what uh, how those uh, are designed. Um, but back to the idea of how do you work out that value? We have a value equation around data. Um, which is simply saying that data is most valuable. So the optimal moment for exchange is when data is accurate and real time. It has context and intent. And I think this is something that um, where we can start to see individuals being really empowered or service providers starting to actually personalize and understand, you know, customer, citizen, cohort by getting to understand that intent. And I think from our perspective, intent is something that can be shared if the trust is there. Um, and if you bring those things together, then um, applying for a mortgage and selling my data, my credit score last month um, as a collective, uh, you know, part of uh, anonymized collective data versus this month in the context of borrowing money, that same, those same data points become exponentially more valuable. So starting to think about what that reward situation is, and that's not even without looking at how it reduces the cost of onboarding, how it speeds up decision making, and how it starts to then help with sort of internal processes. You know, that, that that's a whole other layer of value. But can you give kind of a feel of, you know, how many basis points are, are you charging rather than kind of the optimal? Oh, oh, sorry. So in, in terms of our, so we don't, we don't, that's a very important point. Um, uh, I should have said that. We never touch, mine, sell or monetize the data. We provide the infrastructure. So, so um, there are a, a number of reasons uh, why we've taken that approach. One, we want to be, we want to provide trusted infrastructure. Okay. So if we're providing the infrastructure and at the same time, we're helping ourselves in some way to the spoils, that is very hard to create trust. So, so what we do with our platform, with our capabilities, provide that infrastructure. Uh, the other thing is this is yet to be seen. So watch this space. We'll know later this year, September, October. In the EU, there's a new piece of regulation 
um, following GDPR um, and following the EU data strategy called the Data Governance Act. And one of the things that the Act in its draft form is calling for is that intermediary, intermediary role around data to actually just be that, something that you can, you can trust um, um, as opposed to the fact that, that you may have a business model where you're, where you're over the top helping yourself to the data. Great. Um, we're going to have to speed up on the answers a little bit, Katrina, because there's quite a few, but they're good, and you're you're doing super here. Um, uh, basically, uh, Hugh Richards is curious. We've brought out a couple of uh, reports ourselves over the years and had several events on quantum computing and the threat that it poses to encryption. Um, so from Hugh Richards, the whole transition relies on the Internet as of today. What thoughts on when quantum computing takes root? in terms of opportunities and threats for tokenization? Yes, yeah, so I think the, the, the very short answer, I know we're about to run out of time, is um, we don't know. I mean, we have, we collectively, we have a hypothesis. I mean, there are arguments uh, every day that are saying, yes, but that, that particular methodology will be immediately broken with quantum computing. Uh, we also have governments in different parts of the world saying, you know, they, they want to remove encryption, which which means compromising even your financial transactions, right? And, you know, it's always because of terrorism or security. So I think this part of this architectural dis, dis discussion and decisions that we need to be making right now, we are, I would say our current systems probably will be easy or easier to compromise. Um, we need to be thinking of what those what those design layers are to, to understand that there will be the combination of compute power um, as well as this graph of everything. And I think that will, will change the way that we start to think about how we design things. Yeah. Well, we've got a few questions and comments. You know, Edwina Morton is wondering, you know, given the growing sophistication of scams, can we ever be, have a trusted uh, provider uh, and the scam on such a centralized organization in a way? Uh, Bob McDowell is curious about things to do with safeguards required to prevent monopolies on tokenization as, as they develop. Um, but I'm going to try and uh, pull in two quick questions, if I might. The first one, uh, just a quick answer. Dave Birch, uh, how do you think the pandemic has affected the ID landscape? Hi, Dave. Um, well, uh, I probably could quote maybe one of Dave's <laughs> webinars that I've seen recently. Look, there's been a tectonic shift, and, and, I, and I guess one of the big debates all over the world now is around vaccine status, testing status, vaccine passport, you know, um, QR codes to prove this or that. So I think, I think one of the things that we've noticed, um, and particularly in this last year, is how um, unprepared many enterprises, institutions were for, um, for having to work remotely and moving to, to a digital paradigm. So that's the first thing, unpreparedness. And the second is now the way the world will return, um, the idea of um, employees not wanting to come back into the workplace. So the idea of being able to recruit and onboard and trust, back to one of those earlier questions, how can you trust if you've never met anyone? 50% of the people that are in our company now were hired in the last year have never physically met. And so um, I think digital identity is at the heart of almost everything we will continue to do post-pandemic, but there's no question that COVID has really sped up us needing to make uh, many of these decisions. Uh, Dean Nicholson uh, says, even with widespread tokenization uh, for interactions that provide inputs for a smart contract, where does the trust lie? 
an autonomous car can report that it moved and should receive the payment. But a lot of these events require validation and therefore an escrow who holds the trusted key to that uh, source of off-chain truth. Uh, how are you building that into, into, into your infrastructure? So um, I think these escrow or trusted services are really important. And the other thing is, uh, I think we will have different types of services to, that may be either use case or industry specific. Um, uh, so one of the ways that we're doing that is around key recovery and, and backup into um, uh, a vault, which is um, able to hold keys and then for you to be able to decide how you may want um, access to that vault um, from an escrow service. But I think we've only, I think in the way that the banks for many, many years um, provided that physical infrastructure of, of, a, of, a, of a safety deposit box, um, we will find that trusted institutions will start to offer, offer these digital protection services that will require um, um, uh, either identity or, or um, proof or um, a contract that shows uh, from an estate planning point of view who should have access. But we haven't even started to see what those new services are. Yeah. And just a final, it's a terrible thing to give you a snap question like this, but 15 seconds, Bob McDowell, what behavioral aspects of the human psyche do we need to influence to increase tokenization? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Sure. What behavioral aspects of the human psyche do we need to influence to increase tokenization? Oh, look, 15 seconds. I think what we need to understand is possibly um, more and more around uh, what we, the decisions we make with our limbic brain, um, maybe understanding some of the things from behavioral finance. I mean, um, how, how our reward systems work. So I think there's one aspect of it, which is just really about how we respond to stimulus. But the other is recognizing there's a massive change in social contract with, a, with an emerging generation and their desire to collaborate and spread reward. Um, and I think this is also one of the things, certainly for my generation and the age group that, I, that I'm from, is that us understanding that some of the rules we played by are very different to the rules of, of um, a younger generation. And so I think it's the physiological response, but it is also, um, it, there is also a, a, um, more of a social responsibility in terms of the way these reward systems are designed, yeah. Well, that's a wonderful answer on which to end. So thank you so much, Katrina. Let me just quickly do three rounds of thanks, if I may. You can see before you our sponsors. I, I, I believe all, everyone would agree with me this really brought together technology, economics, finance and the future. Uh, secondly, I would uh, like to thank you, the audience, uh, for being very vibrant today. As I said, all those comments and questions will be sent on to Katrina with your emails. Um, we have an exciting week ahead as ever. Uh, please do check out the website. But I would just point out that on Friday, we're looking at China's green finance strategy. And we have uh, Dr. Uh, Kong Chu from the Bank of China. And seriously, there have been some amazing moves in China this past year, not least the launch of a national ETS uh, on the 1st of February. And he's going to be talking uh, right from the core on what they're doing and uh, what, what their plans are. Um, but my most sincere thanks to you, Katrina. You laid out an exciting road, potentially a long road, uh, but one that I think fills us all with a bit of vision. And you've done it in such an inspiring way. 
Unfortunately, I am unable to open the floodgates of applause, but I have, as ever, my Korean karmic clapper, and I will give you a bit of fake applause, uh, but heartfelt and, and warmly meant from the audience. And we hope to see uh, you developing in the future. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, everyone. Bye.